May the grace and truth of Jesus Christ be with you all. I invite you to open your Bible, if you have it, to the Gospel of John, chapter 6. Our sermon text for today will be John 6, 22 to 40. As we enter into our story again this week, I want to remind you that in this story, John is comparing and contrasting Moses and Jesus. Moses was the superhero of the Jewish people. But as great as he was, someone greater is now here. From the beginning of his gospel till now, John has been telling us that the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And we don't have time to cover all of the Old Testament echoes in this story, but if you listen closely, you will hear echoes of the Passover and the Exodus from Egypt and the sojourney in the wilderness. All of these reverberating in the background of this story. Today I want you to keep in mind that in this story, Jesus is portrayed as the true and better Moses. Like Moses, Jesus feeds a crowd of people a Passover meal of bread, and then He leads them on a new exodus against the wind and across the sea. Like Moses, Jesus confronts the people with their sin, and He challenges their unbelief. And like Moses, Jesus performs signs and points the people to look up to heaven and to believe the Lord God as they travel through this world. The law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now last week we looked at the story of Jesus multiplying the bread and the fish to feed a crowd. And that story is actually called a sign. And the sign is intended to point us to Jesus so that we may believe that He is the Son of God and that we may have life in His name. Well, this week we are going to look at the meaning of that sign. And again, next week we will look at the meaning of the same sign. So the question we ought to ask when we read a story like Jesus multiplying bread and fish and feeding thousands is, so what? What does this sign mean? Well, as I mentioned, our sermon text for today is John 6, 22 to 40. It's printed in your worship order if you don't have a copy of the Bible handy. If you are willing and able, I invite you to stand and pay close attention to the reading of God's holy word. God's word says... On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with His disciples, but that His disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor His disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. When they found Him on the other side of the sea, they said to Him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking Me not because you saw signs, but because you, are... you ate your fill of the loaves. 
Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. The word of the Lord. May God add his blessings to the reading, the preaching, and the hearing of his word. And all the church says, you may be seated. Well, as you just heard in this reading of Scripture, this story contains a lot of talking. It starts out as a dialogue, but then ends up as a monologue. And so as we engage this story today, I want to give you fair warning that we are going to be eavesdropping on an ancient conversation. And I recognize also how difficult it is to not only listen to a conversation when you're in the middle of it, but to listen to someone tell you about a conversation when you're not in the middle of it must be an additional challenge as well. So let's pray that God will grant us the grace to pay close attention to the sermon as we make our way through this story today. The story takes place in a synagogue at Capernaum. We find that out later on, and we'll see that next week, but that's the context. A synagogue, if you don't know, is a gathering place, sort of like a church building, where devout men would come together and they would hear God's Word read and explained and discussed. So don't think of it as a church service so much. Think of it more as Sunday school or a missional community where people dialogue about the things of God. One of the things that I appreciate in reading a story like this is I appreciate the crowd's willingness to talk to Jesus and to ask hard questions and to share their thoughts and opinions with Him. i got to say there's something right and good and healthy about a good exchange of ideas. As a pastor, I appreciate and admire those of you who come to me from time to time and want to discuss these kinds of things. And I want to say to you, we need to have more conversation and more open dialogue with each other, especially when it comes to gospel matters. 
I remind you that a couple of weeks ago I gave you all an open invitation to fill my summer calendar so that we could search for Jesus in all of the scriptures. And so far, no one has taken me up on the invite. But I do want to say to you, the invitation still stands. Now, as I was saying, conversation is very important. And that's what we see happening in the story. Conversation is important and necessary when it is a means to an end, not when it's just an end in itself. So we want to distinguish between the two. Conversation should be a means of discovering the truth and understanding what it is. When conversation happens like that, it is a good thing. Now, I think that initially that's what this crowd was trying to do. It is trying to get at the truth of who Jesus is and what Jesus is talking about. I want to point out a couple of uh, little details for you here. You notice that in today's story, the people call Jesus rabbi. Now, that's a Jewish way of showing respect and calling someone teacher. The crowd is simply recognizing that Jesus was a rabbi, that he had the credentials and the chops to be a teacher of the law and the prophets, and they knew it. But they also felt that he might have been more than a rabbi. If you can remember back to last week in the context of the story, remember how they said he is the prophet who was to come. And they also wanted to make him king by force. So they're still trying to figure out who Jesus is, but at least up to this point, they hold him in some kind of regard. He's at least a rabbi, which would be kind of like being a local pastor, but he might be the prophet. He could even be king. Now, there's something else going on in this story. The people might also be trying to flatter Jesus in some way. The reason I say that is because I'm thinking about people in our day and assuming that people in their day did the same thing. They're seeking Jesus for what they could get out of Him. They're not interested in knowing Jesus as the Word made flesh so much as they are interested in using Jesus to get their felt needs met. So yesterday they felt hungry and Jesus gave them bread. And today they're thinking, if we get hungry again, He'll give us more bread. So you see in the story that like their forefathers, they are driven by the flesh and not necessarily by the Spirit. When they need something from God, they want God to come close. But when they don't need anything from God... They actually want God to stay far away and out of their business. But you notice that Jesus will have none of it. He is in no mood to make deals with these people. And so he criticizes them for making all of the effort and going through all of the trouble to find him on the far side of the sea. Why? It seems like it would be good to know that people are seeking Jesus and going through all of that effort to find him. But the reason he criticizes them is because he knows what's actually in their hearts. That they were seeking him not for who he is as the word made flesh, but for what he can give. So he says to them, in effect, you don't want true bread. You just want more bread. And you don't want eternal life. You want your best life now. It seems the more things change, the more they remain the same. Look around you. 
You know as many people as I do who treat Jesus like a lucky charm or a magic genie or a vending machine. When they need help, they call out to Him in prayer and they expect Him to give them exactly what they want no matter what it is. Give me health. Give me money. Give me security. Give me answers. But Jesus confronts the people with their sin and He challenges their unbelief. Notice He says, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. Now Jesus is not chastising them for wanting a handout. He's not chastising them for wanting bread without working for it. Rather, He is chastising them for working for food that perishes instead of working for the food that endures to eternal life. One bread comes by the sweat of your face. The other bread comes by the blood, sweat, and tears of Jesus' face. One bread is a wage you earn. The other bread is a gift that Jesus earned for you. One bread is actually a curse. The other bread is a blessing. As it is written, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Jesus confronts these people with their unbelief. And He calls them to work for the food that endures to eternal life. Now this story echoes something Jesus said to His disciples when they were sitting near the well in Samaria. Remember how Jesus said, My food is to do the will of the Father who sent me and to accomplish His work. So the food that endures to eternal life is the will of the Father and Jesus commands the crowd to work for that food, to work for the will of the Father. Now on the surface, the people respond positively. They say, what must we do to be doing the works of God? So they act like they're willing to do whatever Jesus commands in order to get that soul food that he, he keeps talking about, that soul food that He keeps offering to them. And you see in the story that they are willing to trade their works for His goods and services, but first they want to make sure that they're going to be doing the exact right works. In other words, they want to know exactly how many steps to take, rules to keep, and boxes to tick off in order to get their fair share, their supply of this soul food. In other words, they want to figure out how many works they would have to do in order to obligate God to reward their hard work with the soul food they craved. I wonder if any of you can relate to that. Have any of you ever been in those sandals or played that game with God? Sometimes it looks like this. We might say, Oh God, if you will do X for me, then I will do Y for you. And sometimes it looks like this. Oh God, if I do A for you, then you must do B for me. 
We put ourselves in a position of bargaining and negotiating and trading with the Lord. Now, of course, we rarely ever put it that bluntly or that crudely, but this attitude of unbelief and ingratitude comes out whenever we grumble about how little the Lord is doing for us after all that we've done for Him. It comes out when we complain about how the Lord did not live up to our expectations after we tried so hard to do better. What must we do to do the works of God? Seems like a valid question on the surface, but listen to this answer. Jesus' answer is shocking. He says the work of God is this, that you believe in Christ alone. To be clear, the work of God is not that you believe, period. It is not that you believe in anyone or anything that your heart desires, period. It is not that you believe in yourself, period. It is not that you believe in some other object or person. The work of God is that you believe in Jesus Christ, the one who was sent on mission to save you. In other words, it is the object of faith, Jesus, not the subject of faith, you and me, that saves. As Dr. Sinclair Ferguson puts it, true faith takes its character and quality from its object. Its strength, therefore, depends on the character of Christ. Even those of us who have weak faith have the same strong Christ as others. The point is that your faith is only as good as the object to whom it is directed. Now it sounds so counterintuitive even to our spiritual and religious ears. After all, most of us come from religious traditions that require us to do something perhaps even do many things in order to get our hands on the soul food that Jesus offers. So the so-called works of God came to us in many shapes and sizes. For some of us it was, do these five steps. And for others it was, do these four spiritual laws. For some it was, do penance. For others it was, do mission work. For others it was, do social justice. For some, it was, don't smoke, drink, cuss, chew, or go with girls who do. For others, it was, don't wear makeup, jewelry, or pants. Yeah. Don't watch rated R movies. Don't listen to rock and roll. Don't, don't, don't. But Jesus says, the work of God is simply this. Trust in the Word made flesh for the life of the world. And yet we have a hard time receiving His Word, much less believing it. Why? It is because we are like arrogant fools. We walk around with a sign that says, We'll work for food. All the 
while ignoring the sign that God sent to us in His Son Jesus that says, free bread today, free bread tomorrow, free bread the day after that, free bread always. But we insist on working for food, misunderstanding that the work of God is actually no work at all. The work of God is to rest in Christ. Our flesh insists that we cannot accept handouts and that we must pay our own way. But the Spirit, the Spirit insists that we come and that we buy and that we eat without money and without price. And He asks us, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? Why do you labor for that which does not satisfy? We might answer, well, because we're religious. <laughs> to which he would say in his counsel, listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live. I know that for some of you the promise here seems so good, but it almost sounds too good to be true. It seems way too easy. We're still waiting for the fine print. We want to know where the, where the catch is, what strings are attached. So we're like the crowd. When the crowd heard this good news, they asked Jesus for another sign. That we may see and believe you. So whether they meant to do it or not, they actually showed their hands. They just acknowledged that they were unwilling to do the work of God. They did not believe in Jesus. They believed in Moses. In their hearts, they're comparing Jesus and Moses, and they conclude that Moses is greater and better than Jesus. And think about it. From their point of view, this is how they did the comparison and contrast, uh, contrasting points. They said they could have been thinking, Jesus only fed a few thousand people with five loaves and two fish one time. But thousands upon thousands of our forefathers ate the manna in the wilderness for 40 years. As it is written, Moses gave them bread from heaven to eat. When read that way, it looks like Moses is greater and better than Jesus. But then Jesus pushes back against them and says, Let me tell you the truth. Moses didn't give you a thing. Moses didn't give you bread from heaven. My Father gave you bread from heaven, and He's giving you bread from heaven right now. And Jesus was right. Search the Old Testament, and you will not find where it is written, Moses gave the people bread from heaven. It is written that God gave them bread. And it is written repeatedly in the book of Moses, Moses saying, God gave them bread. And the psalmist chimes in as well and says, The Lord God commanded the skies above and opened the doors of heaven. And He rained down on them manna to eat and gave them the grain of heaven. And men ate the bread of angels and He sent them food in abundance. The crowd is trying to give the glory that belongs to God to Moses. And Moses and the psalmist are saying it all belongs to God. And Christ Jesus is saying it belongs to my Father. 
once the bread of God was called manna. It was called the bread of angels. But now, that bread of God is called Messiah. Manna was a shadow of the real thing, and the real thing is Jesus Christ. He is the true bread who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Not just to a nation of people escaping Egypt, but life to the world. Who's greater now, Moses or Jesus? Now when the crowd heard about this true bread of heaven, they appeared to ask for it. If you read, it says right there, Sir, give us this bread always. And if we have like a gracious moment and we're reading everything, oh, that's so sweet, they're asking Jesus for bread. That's the prayer. One commentator said, this is the prayer that should be on everyone's lips. Sir, give us this bread always. And on, on the surface, at face value, it seems like a valid prayer, doesn't it? But I want you to know that it's not a prayer request at all. When you read the story in context and read the lines and even read between the lines, you can safely deduce that the crowd asked for the bread with a heavy dose of sarcasm. Sir, give us this bread always should be heard and imagined with people shaking their heads and rolling their eyes and scoffing under their breath as if they were saying to Jesus, Yeah, right, buddy. Give us this enduring bread forever. Like their forefathers, they did not believe in God and they did not trust His saving power. His Word was not enough for them, not even the Word made flesh. And so they kept demanding more and more signs and wonders. Now up to this point, Jesus has engaged in conversation with the crowd. You read the story again, you see a lot of back and forth, a lot of question and answer. It's a great conversation. But from Jesus' point of view, this is where the conversation ends. This is where proclamation begins. In other words, no more dialogue. He switches into monologue mode. And in this monologue, Jesus drives home the point that He has been making all day long. Here's His point. Man does not live by bread alone, but he lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, the ancient text takes on a whole new meaning in light of the fact that Jesus is the Word made flesh and the bread of life for the whole world. The point is that true life can never be found in multi-grain, gluten-free bread. It can only be found in Christ alone. So when Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He was simply echoing what was written about him in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah the prophet said, Thus saith the Lord, In a time of favor I answered you. In a day of salvation I have helped you. I will keep you, and you shall feed along the ways. On all bare heights shall be their pasture. They shall not hunger or thirst. Neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. For he who has pity on them will lead them, and by springs of water he will guide them. Now, this is a tiny glimpse of the eternal life that is promised in Jesus Christ that will be realized in the new heavens and new earth. 
But the promise is breaking into the world, even in the presence of that crowd at the synagogue in Capernaum. The crowds were dead wrong about Moses and about Jesus. Jesus is the true and better Moses because He gives His people true bread from heaven and He gives them true water from the rock and because He gives His flesh and blood and His Spirit for the life of the world. In other words, Jesus does what Moses could never do. Now I realize that we have waded through a deep conversation today and I realize also that contrary to everything they tell you about preaching, I have not used enough captivating illustrations or made enough cutting applications. Maybe there have been a few of those. Perhaps even some of you have zoned out along the way, and I understand that. It is very difficult to listen to a sermon about a sermon or to have a conversation about a conversation. So I get that. But I do want to say this, that we're coming at this point in the story to some of the most important things that Jesus ever said in the Gospel of John. And so, for those of you who might have drifted off for a second, checked out, I might have even done that as well. I want to urge you to listen diligently with all your heart. Jesus Christ makes the following promises to all the people the Father gives Him. These are the words of the Word made flesh for the life of the world. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of Him who sent me. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that He has given me, but I shall raise them up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. What are the promises of Jesus, even to this crowd that is resisting Him and not believing in Him. What are the promises of Jesus to you? The promise is that Jesus will never cast out. He will never lose. He will never destroy anyone who comes to Him in faith. He has come into the world to save sinners and to secure salvation for sinners. He did not come into the world just to make sinners savable. As John Murray put it, security inheres in Christ's redemptive accomplishment. The security of our salvation is tied up in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Period. Amen. Now who can come to Jesus? Who can come to Jesus? Jesus says, whoever wants to come to me may come to me. Is that what he says? <laughs> the next question might be, well, whoever wants to come to Jesus? Really? Because no one wants to come to Jesus. Left to ourselves, left to our own desires, our own devices, none of us would ever want to come to Jesus. 
As Jesus says, only those whom the Father gives to him will ever come to him. They come by the Father's will, not their own will. They come by grace through faith in Christ alone. You know what that means for you? It means that if you have come to Jesus, you really did come to Jesus, but the reason you came to Jesus is because the Father wanted you to come to Jesus. The Father wanted you to come, and He made you want to come, and so you came. It means that if you have received Jesus and believed in Him, the Father's given you to Him. You are a gift to His Son, and His Son is a gift to you. And if you're still coming to Jesus, maybe you haven't arrived yet, let me encourage you with these words. And perhaps the Father has given you to Him as well. What is the will of the Father? What is the Father's desire? His desire, His will, is that Jesus shall lose none of all the Father gives Him, but raise them up on the last day. So it's no mistake, it's no accident, it's no chance, circumstance that you came to Jesus. You came to Jesus because the Father wanted you to come to Jesus. And He can entrust you to Jesus because Jesus is going to do the right thing for you and with you. He's not going to mistreat you. He's not going to cast you out. He's not going to lose you. He's not going to misplace you. He's not going to lose track of you. He's going to keep you safe and secure all the way to the end and beyond. The Father's will is that everyone who looks to Jesus and believes in Him, I don't want to go all Greek grammar on you here, but I will for just a second. It looks like this. Everyone who keeps looking at Jesus, everyone who keeps believing in Jesus shall have eternal life. So unlike our forefathers who perished in the wilderness, we will be preserved and protected by our Savior all the way to the end. They perished because of their unbelief, but we will be preserved by grace through faith in Jesus. In other words, we will be saved by the work of God, which is this, looking to and believing in Jesus. Nothing is able to prevent the Savior from keeping you safe and secure in His salvation. And not even death can come between you and the saving work of Jesus Christ. He will save all the people the Father gives Him. And He will keep them saved all the way to the promised land. That's good news. So let me exhort you with these words. These words were given to our forefathers in the wilderness. Perhaps you will fare better with these words than they did. Today, 
If you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. Do not go astray in your heart. Do not ignore His ways, or else you will never enter His rest. But if you hear His voice, do the work of God, which is this. Trust Jesus and obey His voice. Eat the bread of life and you will never perish.